0: You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows
1: at soundtalentmedia.com. Hey, what's up, Vox and Hops heads? I'm Matt, the vocals of Cryptop C, and you're listening to my podcast, Vox and Hops, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians to talk about their lives, music, and craft beer. I hope you had a great weekend. I had an excellent weekend. I was very, very busy doing a bunch of interviews for Vox and Hops. And man, I got some great interviews this week, and I can't can't wait to get these out and share them with you. I'm stoked to announce that my co-host for this Thursday's Vox and Hops Thirsty Thursday Virtual Hang is none other than Chris Soutsos of J. Haw Films. Chris is one of the funniest people that I know. He's all about the metal. He loves to drink beer. It's going to be a good time, people. Super stoked to have him with us, and you should be too. If you'd like to join the Vox and Hops Thirsty Thursday virtual gang this coming Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you need to be invited or you need to be vetted by someone that's already a part of the gang. This group is now private. But if you would like to join, just send me a message on the Vox and Hops social media accounts and I'll hook you up. On today's episode, I'm with A.L. Levy of URM Academy. Here it is. This is Vox and Hops, episode number 169.
0: I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed.
1: What's up, everyone? Today I'm with A.L. Levy of URM Academy. He is formerly of Doth. He is a metal producer. He has Riff Hard going as well. He has two podcasts. How he had the time to meet up with me and have a chat, I don't know, but I really, really appreciate it. How are you doing, A.L.? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for having me. It's a it's an honor, it's a pleasure uh to speak to fellow podcasters, fellow uh metal hustlers as I like to think of myself trying to do the best that we can in these crazy times. Uh how did you we were actually speaking about doing this right as COVID was just erupting and going crazy and then yep. we both got busy with other shit. But now here we are 3 almost 4 months later finally having a chat. So how did you deal and cope with everything that is COVID, how did you handle social isolation?
0: (laughs) Uh, Not that different than my normal life. So I'm, I'm pretty socially isolated anyway. So it's, uh, honestly, I kind of wanted a break from travel because for now the mix, we travel every single month. I think I travel more than I did in the band and I couldn't see how I could get a break. Like it just, there's no way. Like, it just keeps going month after month after month. So COVID happened. We had to stop traveling. So, you know, not the best reason, but I got my break.
1: Did you get to rest truly, or did you just find yourself occupying those hours that would have been spent waiting and commuting or traveling into new projects?
0: I would say I'm working harder now, uh, more productive hours. But the main difference is that uh, I've been able to focus on myself uh like my health and things like that that were previously neglected so yeah i'd say that that became a project um, i've been going super super hard for the past few months and it's been great and then it allowed me also to start the riff hard podcast cuz the riff hard site school has been around for about 18 months now but we started the podcast in may so yeah it it gave time for that but honestly dude Uh, My schedule is more filled up than before. I think it's just because I work on the Internet and everybody's home.
1: It's it's a time and everybody wants to chat. Everybody wants to stay connected. Everyone wants to, uh, you know, are bored. And as much as we are musicians, we tend to be introverts. There is that creative side, that itch. We have to be extroverts slightly sometimes you know a part of our personality has to be extroverted and uh, that's where communicating through the internet has actually been a blessing in disguise uh, throughout all this covid garbage yeah the that
0: extroverted thing i think that musicians should learn how to do it even if it doesn't come naturally I, i've there's some people who where it's just how they are but I think by and large, musicians and audio engineers too, creative people aren't, yeah, they're not the most social people. But you notice that the ones that you know that have done well generally figured out how to talk to people. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of important.
1: Kind You kind of you need people. It is a very, very small circle. And and if yeah, you, if tiny. you rub people the wrong way, people are going to hear about it. <laughs> and it's not going to go well for you, no matter how talented you are, actually.
0: Yeah, though I will say, you know, people say don't burn any bridges and I agree with that in theory, but I think if you stick around long enough, it's impossible to not burn a few. Like there's no way on earth that you're going to get along with everybody forever. So, uh, I'm just saying that because, uh, sometimes I know people who have a falling out with somebody and then they, they get really like insecure about their future and, uh, I I don't think it's the end. As long as you don't burn more bridges than you've got, there's like a, there's like a ratio.
1: (laughs) And, and, you know, you can burn a bridge and still keep going and being a talented individual and uh, just, you might burn one bridge, but then reinforce another bridge by burning that bridge hypothetically even.
0: Well, I just think part of being an artist and an entrepreneur, I kind of see them as the same thing. Entrepreneur is just an artist that, focuses on business uh, you're going to be polarizing and if you're polarizing your art you're going to be polarizing in relationships too so you can't avoid it it's just it's going to happen at some point absolutely but you're right there there's always somebody else to make a new relationship with
1: yeah and the fact that you're not with the other person might actually encourage them to be more your friend (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) vox and hops is all about hanging out with my metal friends and talking about Life metal and craft beer do you have a craft beer on your side do you have something to drink
0: i've got water i'm sorry i i uh i know that you said have a beer but i uh, i'm on a i'm on a program right now that Has no alcohol for 75
1: days. Good for you. That's good. I wish I could do that, but I am too in love with beer, which is leading me up to what I'm going to be drinking during our chat. It is a Third Moon Brewing Company's Each Beast a God. It is an 8.5% double stout with coffee. Third Moon Brewing just opened up in Milton, Ontario. I want to make sure I got that right. Yes, Milton, Ontario, and they are probably Ontario's most metal brewery, even though they just opened up, everything that they've, I've tasted from them, seen from them is incredible. Tell me about this 75-day no drinking.
0: Okay, so uh, it's, first of all, I'm just going to live vicariously through you. Uh, it's just a program called 75 Hard. You can look it up. The rules are you got to work out twice a day for 45 minutes. One of them has to be outdoors. You got to follow a certain diet. Like, you pick it. But you have to follow it. Zero cheats. Zero deviation. Got to drink a gallon of water. No alcohol. And uh, read 10 pages out of a nonfiction book every single day for 75 days. And if you fuck up once, you got to go back to the beginning. Oh, shit. So, it, yeah, it doesn't sound nuts. But day after day after day after day, it starts to get insane. But... But the whole idea is uh, to build up that mental toughness.
1: I can see that happening after all that. And uh, it takes, uh, I've read and living through stuff, it takes about 21 days to form a new habit. So so how many days are you into this now? The 21 days thing
0: um, is accurate, but that's, uh, that's like the first stages of forming a habit. The actual... Uh, to where it's like in your muscle memory is more like 66 days. Oh shit! okay. apparently, Yeah. So like 21 days is where it starts to become something that you're used to and just doing, but you can still get knocked off. Like say that you, you decide that you're not going to smoke cigarettes or something. You go 21 days. Like you might start to feel a little bit better or whatever. You want to add an exercise habit. You do it for 21 days. You might start to get into it, but if you get derailed by anything, it's not strong enough to keep you there. So yeah,
1: 66 days. I'm uh, two weeks in right now. Good for you. Good for you. Keep it up. Keep it up as I enjoy this. <laughs> hey, man. Of God. I'm sorry. Just tell me it, what it tastes like. It poured out dark and ominous like our souls. Yeah, dude, it looks great. It smells coffee on the nose with some booze. Mm. <laughs> oh, it's got a bitter bite, but not too much. A sweet coffee boozy but not too boozy exactly what you would like a nice strong coffee stout to be uh, once again third mood brewing people if you can get some in ontario do it i uh, strongly suggest that let's dive into your youth when you're growing up in your parents or guardians house what music was playing on the radio when you were not in control of the music what music did your parents or guardians listen to
0: usually orchestral music and the Beatles, I guess. Yeah, orchestral music and
1: the Beatles. That's because I heard your, your dad was a conductor.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I wasn't allowed to listen to rock or metal or anything like that. The, there was none of that. I actually had to sneak it when I was uh, 12 and 13.
1: I want to hear that story. How, how did you get it into the house? A. How did you get your hands on it? How did you get it into the house, and where did you listen to it?
0: My grandmother bought it for me. She didn't give a fuck. Uh, she... My grandmother had like had seen like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin the Doors and all those bands and she was into that stuff and she just bought it for me. So that's that's how I got the contraband. And yeah, I would just listen to it at night when he was asleep when my parents were asleep. Yeah. It was against the rules.
1: Was there ever this moment that he found it? and he Yes. Was, <laughs> and did he just lose his shit? <laughs>
0: I wouldn't say he lost his shit. I don't want to paint him in a bad light, but it was definitely stuff like, I do not want you listening to this, Eyal. Uh, you should not be listening to this garbage. Like, You know, uh, he would take the CDs. He, will, he, he would probably deny it now or start laughing now. Like, I don't think he could envision himself being that way. But I think things were different back then.
1: Has he, has he opened up to metal music over the well, years yeah. with everything that you're involved with?
0: That and also, I mean, he made a record with Ingve, So, like, I think that in, like, 97 or 96, that kind of popped the cherry a little bit. Uh, And, yeah, I mean, after I had done it for long enough, how, what's he going to do, right?
1: Exactly. And the more you push a kid in one direction, of course, they're going to rebel in the other direction.
0: Yeah, I've wondered if this metal thing was a rebellion thing or not. It, It didn't feel like it. I just liked it. I just got drawn to it. I think like everybody else, I i mean, you didn't start listening to it because of something external, right? You just got drawn to it.
1: It just happens. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's something that just happens like with most art.
0: Of- yeah. It just scratches some itch. So maybe like if I was a psychiatrist or something going back in time, maybe there's like some subconscious rebellion going on that, took place but it didn't feel like it then it doesn't feel like it now i just i'm just drawn to dark art basically
1: was there a going to see it the first time was it was it, it must have been harder to to sneak out and go see a concert versus just listening to it do you remember your first metal concert that you went to
0: yeah interestingly enough i was allowed to go to a decent amount of those which is weird, makes no sense. But yeah, it was Megadeth, Countdown to Extinction Tour. And I think that the only reason that I was allowed to go to that was because my dad was friends with the manager of that theater. Okay. okay and okay. his daughter was in my class. And so we, I went through her to get the tickets through her dad. And since it was at like some, it was like a really fancy theater, I guess uh my parents didn't think that anything bad was gonna happen. However however, about a year later we were on vacation in Florida in Fort Lauderdale and I got out of the elevator and Rob Halford was there and so was Scott Ian and Holy I shit. Anthrax and Fight were on tour together and were staying in my hotel. It was it was fucking crazy. I was like fourteen years old. It was like it was nuts. And so I went up to them and started talking to them at some point. I like worked up the balls and then the anthrax dudes invited me to go to the show with them. Like Scotty in and, uh, Danny Spitz, I believe were, I'm just trying to remember this. It was so long ago that, yeah, they told me they would drive me in the van. I could hang out backstage the whole time, uh, come back to the hotel in the van and I'd be their guest. And my parents didn't let me go.
1: Oh, (laughs) Yeah, that was cr- no, that was crushing. <sighs> and this is, you know, pre-internet everything. Oh, yeah, no, only this is like 94. you only just seen like their images maybe on MTV probably. Yes. And then here they are in the flesh in front of you and you could live this perfect night.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, it, it, bands back then had a very different uh, aura around them than they do now. I mean, I think maybe the biggest bands have that, like maybe Slipknot or something, but in general, people like bands for the music now. There's less of the less of the rock star thing happening, which for better or for worse, that's just how it is. But yeah, back then you only saw them in magazines or on MTV or at a show. That that's it. You didn't see them anywhere else. So it was like spotting a rare animal or something.
1: And so much mystique. You know, everyone now has a podcast, is uh, streaming on Twitch. You know a lot about the personal lives of rock stars now or of musicians at this point than before. Before it was all just what they presented or what they wanted to unveil to the world.
0: Yeah, uh, their celebrity status was way higher. Uh, I remember when I was in the lobby watching them check in and they all had pseudonyms. Can you imagine a metal band? I mean, other than like a Metallica or something, other than like that, I guess Anthrax is like, especially in those days, is really big. But just can you imagine checking into a hotel under a pseudonym? No way. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that that was kind of mind blowing. So I, I think that that right there, the pseudonym thing is like a good, it's not the biggest detail, but it's. Indicative of how, how like famous they were in that time period.
1: Do you remember your first time on stage?
0: Um, in a metal band.
1: Yeah, how did you, that whole thing? Because guitar, it was always guitar first. You were allowed to go to guitar first, or did it have uh, to start to, somewhere I, else?
0: I had to fight for it. Um, when I was twelve, I wanted to play guitar, and I told them, and I had a bar mitzvah, and I was like if you're going to get me anything, get me a guitar. And the answer was no. Um, and the, after like fighting about it for a, about a year, the answer was then if you want to play electric guitar, you have to play classical guitar for a year and prove that, just prove it. So they're basically trying to get me to not play electric guitar. But <laughs> I, uh, I took the challenge and I, I made it through that year and then I got an electric guitar. And from that point on, basically uh, I just worked jobs and did whatever I could to get my own gear. Cause they weren't, they were, they were not buying me gear. It's so weird. I'm making them sound bad. They've been super supportive. I just think that culturally and culturally to them, especially back then metal was just, they didn't know anything about it. They had never seen it before. Uh, you actually believe these things that you read about bands like it actually and i do think that the scene was actually a lot more dangerous back then it's a lot more violent uh it's it's calmed down quite a bit i think there was actually an element of danger back then so yeah they were worried about their 13 year old kid getting into this shit and again they didn't know anything about it they're it's not that My dad came from a sheltered background. I mean, he was in war and all that stuff, but metal and rock played zero role in their lives growing up. So it was a total culture shock.
1: So that first time?
0: Yeah. First time, um, it was probably a talent show. If I, I think it was probably a talent show covering a Metallica song or something. It was embarrassing and it sucked.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As most of them do. Was it was it just you performing or was it like a whole band
0: thing? No, it was a band we got together, we practiced. It was one. Yeah, that's right. It was one. We practiced it a ton and man everybody just fucked up. It was it was demoralizing. It was a very demoralizing thing.
1: The first time on stage is is always you know, a- exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. It's fucking scary, man. The, uh, I mean, do you still get jitters? I do, especially like on big gigs, like a festival gig. And, and, uh, I've said it a few times on the podcast that I feel like if we get to the point we have no more jitters, no more anything before stepping up there, maybe it's time to reevaluate something.
0: I agree. I agree. I think,
1: but there's a difference between
0: jitters and fear, right? Yeah. 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 So I think what I was feeling when I first started was fear more than anything, like profound fear. Like then, you know, obviously as I got older, I don't think the jitters ever totally went away, but it wasn't fear. So at one point it turned into a, let's fucking do this kind of jitters. I'm sure you you know the feeling.
1: The 100% is that when you were out touring with Duff?
0: Yeah. Yeah. After, after a while that that's just the attitude that took over.
1: I, I would stress out
0: sometimes like before a big tour, like if we hadn't toured for like six weeks or two months or something, um, that felt like a really long time. And yeah, I, I have like one or two nights of stress, but no real fear after that.
1: What, what came first becoming a producer or becoming a touring musician? They happened. They kind of
0: coincided. The, uh, the idea was to be a musician so in order to be a musician you have to record you have to have a recording right back then there was there wasn't the same kind of opportunity that there is now to get awesome recordings on the cheap so i went to some studios around boston where i was going to school and i priced out doing a record properly and it was like $40,000. Jesus, yeah. And I was like 19 or 20. <laughs> so so I was like, this is not going to happen. And I didn't want to just go do like the weekend demo at a studio. Because, you know, like when metal bands would do that, and you'd hear their demos and they'd be fucking terrible. So I didn't want that either. Uh, so I just took the student credit cards that, that uh, those scammers would give us. And I maxed them out on some microphones and I started, I started recording then. And the idea was I'm going to record so I can record my own music, but also so that I can meet bands that my band can then play with. So maybe, and then within two or three years, I went on my first tour. So yeah, producing came first, but I kind of see them as parallel. One served the other basically.
1: And do you have more of a love now now over the years, going from touring versus being in the producer 's chair? what do you rather neither <laughs> <laughs> I like what I like
0: what i 'm doing now,
1: which is something that 's interesting. It's, everything has developed into something yeah
0: yeah, but I will say that uh if I had to say uh, if I had to answer which one I was more passionate about, it was definitely writing music.
1: The right production.
0: Yeah. Production was not a love ever. It was just some means to an end. Mm-hmm. Basically. There's some people who fucking love it like Christian or whatever. Um I know people like that. Those are the people I get on nail the mix who they live and die for this stuff. But I was never like that. I, I got good enough to do what I needed to do and did cool things, but it was never like the, it was ne- never had the number one spot. So, writing music had the number one spot.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you, you must have been doing some stuff right to, to make your way all the way to, to Audio Hammer and then move on to start the URM Academy. It's a, I, I love how you have turned everything into a business. You've turned your passion for music as an artist into a business. And you said earlier that being a businessman is a bit like being an artist. So, so let's touch on all that. Let's touch on how you have monetized this career that you've created. Well, first of all,
0: yes, I do think that being a businessman, if you, well, let me clarify, being an entrepreneur is the same thing as being an artist because you're creating something out of thin air and you're putting it out into the world and you're, I I would say like a professional artist. It's not, not the same thing as if you're just doing it for fun on your own, which is cool, but it's, it's this, it's the same sort of thing as, you know, if you're running a band or whatever, you have to create something that's going to connect with people. Uh, It has to be, it has to stand out. It has to basically fill a gap that they didn't know that was there. And the same thing as music and uh, it has to engage them and they have to be willing to pay for it. Like all that shit's the same. And creating things out of thin air, take the same kind of whether you're creating a business product or a song it's a similar sort of spark. So that, that's why I think that they're kind of the same. Um, I think they take a similar sort of temperament. But as far as monetizing goes, the, I mean, there's a lot of streams going on. So it's like I could probably talk for several hours about that. But what specifically do you want to know about I'm monetizing? interested about
1: at what point when you, guys, when you started URM... And was it an immediately something that you were going to monetize, or was something that you wanted to create to get out there to connect with people and then at a certain point you decided to take it to the next level for monetizing it
0: i so in my view, monetizing and connecting with people go hand in hand it's the monetization is a gauge for how much you're connecting with people i mean it it's not it it's not like uh the be all end all at all. It's not about that, but it's one of the most solid ways that you can, that you can know if you're making any sort of impact, right? Because what, what other methods do you have like likes on social media that, so there's that. And then also I've always seen it going together because if you're not generating money, you're not going to be able to keep doing the thing you want to do. So to me they they've always gone hand in hand. The money allows you to do the thing and keep going and make it better and not have to do other things. Um so yeah, it was it was gonna be monetized from the from the get go. Uh I am an extremist. I don't like I don't have hobbies. Um everything I do I go all the way with. So I couldn't imagine just doing it just you know, just doing it and not having a plan for it to get big or something
1: but you must have gone through a bunch of other stages before that to get to this mindset yeah so um
0: it started with uh i always felt like i wanted to do something bigger than i was doing um that felt like the band was not enough i felt like production was not enough and i'm not this is not me talking down at all on anybody who does that i think everybody needs to do what what they're called to do basically. And if you're called to make music, that's what you should do. But in my mind, there was always something else that I was, I felt like I was designed to do um, something that kind of like pulled together a bunch of different disciplines and made some sort of different kind of impact. Um, and so it was actually starting to drive me crazy, uh, like towards the end of the band. And when I went to audio hammer, it's was like, this is all cool but this, this isn't right. And I started to think forward, like, what if I'm 50 years old and still doing this? And I was like, no, the hell no, that that's not the future I want. And so was, just started thinking and thinking, how am I going to do this? How, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then my best friend started working for a company called creative live. And he started b- basically the, they're, they're a, Let me backtrack. They're uh, an online education company. Started working there in like 2012, 2013. They did mainly photography classes, business classes. They didn't have audio. And he convinced them, I helped him build a pitch to convince them to start an audio channel. He didn't know any other producers. So I did his first class for him on Creative Live. I didn't want to do it. I didn't realize at the time that 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 was the thing I was looking for. I actually thought it was fucking lame and (laughs) only did it because he was my friend. Uh, Yeah, it was on a, on a piece of software that I'd never used before. It was Easy Drummer, which I think is really good. And I love TuneTrack, but I had never used it before. I didn't want to go teach shit on the internet. Like I was, I thought it was embarrassing, but he was such a good friend that I did it anyways. And as it happens, it was really fucking cool. I really dug making the course I dug teaching it. I dug every single thing about it. It involved travel. Like I got flown there. Like it was, I always wanted a career that involved travel. And so it was like, hmm. this and the response that I got was incredible and I didn't have to try for it. I always felt in doth that we were swimming against the current. Like no matter what we did, it was just not enough. And some bands, they just connect with people you can't control that and but i knew what it was like to not connect with people uh, and then this just connected right away so i started doing more creative lives and they just started crushing it and he brought other producers on that were way better and way more famous than me and my classes crushed all of theirs like and so it's like you know what maybe this is maybe this is like some data of that on a direction I need to go in because this is actually working better than anything else I'm doing. So I asked creative live to hire me and I I asked my friend if they would hire me and he told me he wasn't even going to float the question to them. Like absolutely. Hell no. I
1: was like, come on, man.
0: Think, think about what we could do if me and you were working together. Like think about what you've done with just me advising you. We could like make this a serious thing. He was like, Yeah, but they are never gonna hire you, so it's not gonna happen. It's like, all right, I'm gonna do it on my own then. So that's that's basically where it came from. They that wasn't gonna happen, and I knew that it was a great idea, and so I made my own version basically.
1: That's amazing. And it really stems back to producers. I know Donaldson, Chris Donaldson from Cryptopsy and the Grid loves to meet up and chat with fellow producers so so yes. anyone that's that's learning how to produce it's not like you can go take a guitar lesson you just go on tour you go watch like a show and you see someone finally play that riff that you've been trying to decipher in your ear just by listening to it and you're like oh that's how he does it when it comes to produ- producing it's it's very behind the the curtain up until recently you know the, the producers were keeping all their cars close to their Because they wanted to be the guy that had the sound, right?
0: Yeah. So, yes, you're correct. They were kind of treated it as if they were illusionists or something like the same sort of vibe, like a David Copperfield would have about his magic tricks. They had that sort of vibe about it. However, I maintain, and this is what I tell producers that are weird about coming on, is that your moves don't matter. All that matters is your brain and your ears. They know as well as I know that every single production, every single mix, is a collection of thousands of micro decisions, and nobody's going to be able to clone that because that's that comes from your sensibilities and your tastes. So, you can show people everything, every single move that you make, and they're not going to be able to recreate what you do. It doesn't matter if they copy the settings, they're not going to be able to, because they're not going to understand exactly how you heard it and understood it. And I've proven this over and over and over and over. If the, if it was possible to do by now, somebody would have made a mix from an El the mix track that sounded just like the original, but in five years and over 70 episodes, it's never happened. Not even close. And even when like pro mixers, uh, will do it just for fun. Their mixes don't sound anything like the original either. So, yes, you're right. Producers were like that about it, but I think they're wrong. And so that's that's actually been kind of polarizing about URM. But I've won a lot of people over cuz I've helped them get a little bit more secure about themselves and realize that dude, you're successful cuz you are special not because you're doing some sort of fancy trick people are going
1: to you for your ears hmm. that that's it which is what we must protect our ears everyone fuck yeah <laughs> wear earplugs <laughs> i've been saying it in a few of these that uh this is the longest rest that my ears have had thanks to covid <laughs>
0: yeah man uh Musicians really should
1: wear earplugs. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We do. We should. <laughs> yeah. Everyone else should too. Uh, is there a producer that you've always wanted to have on nail the mix that you haven't had yet?
0: Andy Sneap. Yes. I don't think he'll ever do it, but uh, Andy Sneap. Yeah. Colin Richardson. He'd yes. Be great. Yes. I mean, there's a lot, but uh, those would be pinnacle for me. And I don't think they'll ever
1: do it. You think that they? Is it? Did they fall into that? They want to keep their the illusion they want to keep they want to keep the 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 mystique of the mystique i don't
0: know i i think andy gives no fucks he's like so successful and and the thing about him and this is part of what i totally have always respected about him is he does what he wants he and he doesn't do what he doesn't want he's turned down huge 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 bands that you if you knew what bands i was talking about you'd be like what in the fuck? How do you turn that down? And he didn't want to do it. So he turned it down. He doesn't do what he doesn't want to do. And uh, he's very, very true to himself and he doesn't want to teach shit. So he's not going to teach shit. It doesn't matter how much money we dangle in front of him. He's not going to do it. And I think Collins the same way. So I respect it. I totally respect it.
1: Uh let's dance into the world of podcasting. Uh how did you get into all this? Uh is podcasting something that you always enjoyed? Did you listen to podcasts beforehand? How did you get into the world of podcasting?
0: Podcasting wasn't very big when we started podcasting. In like I started podcasting in 2014. Wow, okay. And yeah, it really wasn't it wasn't a thing yet like I mean, Rogan was around. There were, there were a few. Tim Ferriss was around. But it was not like this, I'd say, cultural phenomenon like it is now. It's I think it's changed the way that people think um, in a big, big way. And it, it's made intellectualism cool. It, I think it's had a profound impact. But back then, no. People were like, what is this lame wannabe radio shit? <laughs> Most podcasts with few exceptions were super boring they sounded like college radio mm-hmm. just terrible hosts terrible conversations and so it w- there wasn't like a, there wasn't really a model to follow i just felt like i'm good at conversation and i'm good at getting people to talk like i always have felt that way and i felt like if i could have conversations with people that i thought were doing great stuff that it would be engaging and Uh, And I love doing it. So it seemed like a really, it seemed like a great way to help people get to know us at URM uh, by getting into our brains once a week and yeah, and it worked. So, but it's hard, it's hard to think back to those days, man, because podcasting was so not what it is now is, is such, it was such a like rare thing back then. And also, you know, nobody back then was talking about this kind of stuff that that we talked about. And so I felt like there was this major, like you said, back then, especially producers held everything close to their chest. You couldn't just go get production lessons, especially in metal. And it was, there, This shit was not out there. I it just felt like it needed to be out there. I know that some people disagree with me, but the way I see it is we're making history, right? This is art history. If we don't document the way that this shit's made, how is the next generation going to carry it on? And I've said that to people and they think I'm making that up, but I'm not like for real. Every other art form, pretty much, except for like some folk art, you know, you can learn it in institutions. It's passed on. You can learn shit music from the 1600s now and play it exactly like they did then. You can buy period instruments. You can do... You can learn classical stuff, classical art, classical music, but for this style of music that we love and is a real thing to so many people, there's no documented record of how it's made. Mm-hmm. So I, that didn't sit right with me at all, especially around 2010, 2011, when I felt like metal was going in a weird, weirder shit direction. And super uber polished
1: productions.
0: Yeah, everything was starting to sound super plastic. Like scene bands were like the biggest thing on earth. Cool metal was, I mean, there were some cool bands like Gojira and stuff, but by and large, things were in a really weird spot. And I felt like somebody needed to help the next generation not fuck it
1: up worse, basically.
0: <laughs> like, so, yeah. <laughs>
1: What are what some of the biggest challenges when it comes to managing all of the things that you do? Uh, prioritizing, mm-hmm. I think,
0: is the biggest challenge because there's so many tasks that you can get wrapped up in things that don't move the needle just because they have to get done. So learning how to manage other people so that they can, like managing a team, basically, I think that's the most challenging thing. Uh, getting them to where... You don't need to babysit, you don't need to micromanage, and everything is running actually better than if you would have been doing it. That's been the biggest challenge, but that's where URM's at now. We have an incredible team and it took it took this long. It took five years to get to this point. But because we put so much time into the team, I've been able to do Riff Hard and you know, take this time to focus on myself and have a couple other companies in the works. So yeah, that's the hardest part. The rest like the actually doing it part, the booking people, that part's hard too. But to me, that's the part that comes naturally. Like the thinking big and making shit happen, thats I've always done that kind of stuff. The managing a team part, that's the part that did not come naturally. And I'm, it was not good at that.
1: Totally imagine having issues with that. I am a bit of a control freak. When it comes to Vox and Hops, I'm not in charge of Cryptopsy, so so it, the, the full responsibility doesn't lie on my shoulders. Whereas Vox and Hops, I'm in control of everything, so I can imagine that finding people that fit it, your, you know, into your schema of of what a good URM person would be must have been difficult. I mean, it's very similar
0: to finding good band members. Exactly, you know, you have to you have to weigh how good are they at technical things versus how do they sound versus can I handle hanging out with them versus how do they rub people the wrong way versus do they have any habits that are going to fuck this up? How many
1: many bridges have they burnt?
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's all this shit when you're finding band members that you need to take in a professional band that you need to take into consideration. And so I kind of see it that way. Also though, I think being a producer or an artist uh you kind of have to manage teams but there's an element of it to where you have to be a little narcissistic too because because that's kind of the nature of art and so there's a little bit of an incompatibility between an alpha musician and someone that runs a business team so I kind of had to retrain myself a little bit you, you know like you can be a control freak when you're running a band And it can work. It's a lot more difficult to be that way when you're running a business, in my opinion. So, yeah, I have trained myself to not be one. It's been very hard, (laughs) but very, 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 very good thing to do.
1: Uh, How do you turn it off? How do you turn off your, your, your idea brain, your hustle brain? How do you turn it off?
0: Don't turn it off. You mean, like, how do I turn off, uh, like, do you mean how do I relax at night or something? Exactly. exactly. How do I I not micromanage people?
1: Um, No, we can, let's cover the micromanage and then the, the second, the first one afterwards.
0: Okay, so the how to not micromanage is, now I think it's simple. You have to set the standards and make sure that everybody understands them and then help them get there. And if you help them get there and you don't tolerate anything below the standard, eventually they're just going to be operating at that level. That's all there is to it. I mean, it in, in practice, it's a lot more difficult than it sounds, but it really is that simple. And usually when people micromanage shit, it's because they don't trust the people that are working for them or with them. And uh, they haven't communicated what's expected properly. So, so it's like this negative feedback loop where the people working for them are fucking up, but they're not communicating how it needs to be better. And so they don't trust them. And then they communicate with them less because they don't trust them. And then people are even more off target and it doesn't work. So you have to find a way to build trust for the pe- with the people that you're working with. You have to find a way to trust them and, uh, And you have to make sure that you're communicating the standard properly. Um, As far as relaxing at night, man, that's hard. The idea brain, I don't think ever, ever shuts off. Um, I have to, I have to do a lot of stuff to calm down. I have to exercise a lot, sauna, like meditate. I have like a three hour routine at night. Wow. Otherwise I'm not going to sleep. Basically.
1: Just going through the checklist in your mind. It doesn't stop. Um,
0: I had insomnia really, really bad for many, many years because I didn't understand how to shut it down. I, up until like two or three years ago, it was uh, really messing up my life. The older you get, the more insomnia fucks you up. So um, I decided I was going to fix it. And the what I have to do to fix it, is to tire myself out so much that I don't have the energy to, uh, to basically,
1: <laughs> I, I call it the hamster wheel. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hundred percent. I totally feel it. And it's as if your like, body's vibrating. Oh, yeah, this yeah. this yeah. is the vibe that I get whenever I had a night like that.
0: Yeah, dude. Imagine that every single night. So it, so basically like for instance, after this podcast is over, I'm going to go do like 90 minutes of cardio. I'm going to get in the sauna for like 40 minutes. And I'm going to meditate for like 20 minutes and uh, then read. And maybe within three hours, I'll be ready to go to sleep. Wow. If I don't do that, I guarantee you I'll be up till six or seven.
1: Wow. Uh, One last question. You're very uh, meticulous and uh, organized, so I doubt this happens to you very often especially not now because you're on your 75 day challenge, but what is your hangover cure when you are hungover?
0: Pedialyte. Absolutely. Pedialyte. Saw that in a Pantera video, I believe, I think, or was it or maybe in a, in an interview, but Dimebag was talking about Pedialyte. And I was like, all right, if that's what, if that's what resuscitates Pantera, then Pedialyte. And yeah, dude, Pedialyte is a godsend. I use that, daily after working out too that i i think that light and caffeine and sleep caffeine doesn't mix with the sleep but uh yeah Pediolite and caffeine what about you
1: i suffered in silence i have two young children so so i wake up and i do my exercise that i do mm-hmm. every day and what i do, you do? oh I, I got a routine i work out 6 6 days a week trying you, nice. you got to fight the hops you know it's it's a losing battle but it's something i'm still trying to do <laughs> <laughs> and suffer in silence because the kids that didn't drink the beers i did fair enough but i mean what about when you're on tour or
0: something i get to sleep more so i i don't get ah, home okay <laughs> okay that that makes sense so so you're hanging Normally, I hear hangovers get worse as you get older, and that's certainly been true for me. Is that true for you? It is
1: 100% true for me, too. Uh, it used to be finished 5 o'clock, I'd be okay. Now, if it was a real interesting night that turned into a interesting early morning, I feel it the next day, even sometimes. So you mean by 5 a.m., you'd be fine? No, no, normally I would be like hungover. And then by 5 p.m. I would be okay. The next day. <laughs> exactly. But now normally okay. it, it lingers into the next day sometimes if I Oh okay. If yeah. I went a bit too far.
0: Yes. Same. <laughs> uh so I'm I'm kind of afraid of going too far now because of that, because the the hangovers are devastating. Uh they did I mean, they always sucked, but now they're devastating. So uh I try to I try to I said I'm an extremist and I don't do things halfway or whatever, but when I drink that I actually do try to do in moderation, like two, maybe three, three is pushing it for me. But so usually like two, and then I know that I'm okay. But once I start pushing it, man, it's, it's just going to destroy me. So, so yeah,
1: but if that
0: happens, Pedialyte. And you right. have
1: so much to do. You're so busy and everything is scheduled. I know what it's like, so I can only imagine what it's like for you. And and you can't let these other projects suffer because you're a little bit hungover.
0: No. A, you got to live and die by the schedule. It, the, I just got gastritis, which I've healed from, and it took me down for a while. And I was just thinking about how much work I didn't do and how much shit suffered because of it. I wouldn't want to do that by choice. To it's it's not just the projects, man. It's the people who work for me. Like I'm responsible for their livelihoods, so I, I take that really, really seriously. Some of them have kids. Like if I start fucking up, the, it could jeopardize them buying food for their kids. So, yeah, I just I just can't do that.
1: That, that is uh, a <laughs> good way to think. And you yeah. shouldn't come and hang out with me and Christian Donaldson.
0: <laughs> I, I'm sure we'll hang out at some point And uh, I'll, I'll deal with it.
1: Hey, all, thank you so much for taking some time uh, to you. have a chat with me about your life, music, and me drinking a craft beer. Uh, it was uh, an absolute pleasure. Uh, I love the hustle. I love your entrepreneur mindset. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Hey, thank you all so, so much for listening right to the end. You know that I love and appreciate that. So cool to finally catch up with Al. He is just so brilliant. I love what he's done with his company. It is uh, something that I find truly inspiring. I, I, I loved having this chat with him it opened up a lot of doors in my mind that i'm looking to pursue right now so massive thanks to al for taking the time he's very very busy as you guys heard to sit down with me and to have a chat with me i greatly greatly appreciated that don't forget on thursdays another vox and hops thirsty thursday virtual hang and my co-host this week is going to be chris suits of j hoff films you should be there it's going to be fun people I have one more episode coming at you this week. It's going to drop on Friday. But until then, remember to enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. Cheers, Vox and Hops heads. Hello out there! Yes, we're out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together, we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen.
0: Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly
1: episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Haydn, Backstreets magazine founder Charles Cross,
0: and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for
1: you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform. And we hope to see you further the line up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you.